Hello, and welcome to Coastal Crimes, the podcast where I talk about the dark side of your favorite tropical vacation spots. I'm Jen, your host, and this week we are going to be talking about Puerto Rico. I have two cases for you guys, and I'm going to start off with one that's a little bit more brutal and end with a mysterious story. The second one I'm saving for last because I am pretty excited just because we did get some new information just this past year. So in the beginning, this story didn't really have an end, but now it kind of does, which I think is pretty cool. But before we get into all of that, let's talk about some fun facts about Puerto Rico. You might already know of all the beautiful beaches and the sizzling nightlife and the interesting historic buildings. But behind this premier Caribbean image, there's a layer of odd and quirky facts that make this island even more interesting and unique. Puerto Rico has the largest single-dish radio telescope in the world. Measuring at 1,000 feet in diameter, this scientific hub and technological marvel is so big that it is nestled between the mountains of Arecibo. The Radio Telescopio de Arecibo is not only the biggest radio telescope in the world, but also the most sensitive. Is it, it has even been featured in several movies like Contact and GoldenEye. Two of the oldest churches in the Americas are located in Old San Juan. A tour of the historic Old San Juan includes the second oldest church in the Americas, the Iglesia de San Jose, which means San Jose's church. While it is the second oldest church structure-wise, it is the oldest church in the Americas still in use. It was built in 1522, and it is still to this day a great example of Spanish Gothic architecture. There is also Cathedral de San Juan, which is San Juan's cathedral, which was originally built before San Jose's church in the 1520s, but its original building fell victim of looting and attacks and even hurricanes. Soon after these disasters, though, the the cathedral was rebuilt to its current shape. Puerto Rico has its own Galapagos Island. Off the western shore of mainland Puerto Rico, you'll find Mona Island, a natural reserve unspoiled by man. It has been compared to the Galapagos Islands for its natural beauty and its colony of iguanas. These iguanas, known as the Mona Iguana, are found nowhere else on Earth, adding to the uniqueness of this ecosystem. Unfortunately, tourists cannot visit the island because the government protects it from any human impact. San Juan was the headquarters of the Inquisition. The Catholic Church has played an important role in the history and development of Puerto Rico since the early 1500s. As I mentioned before, the oldest church still in use in the Americas was built in Old San Juan in 1522. Yet in 1519, Pope Leo X declared Puerto Rico the first ecclesiastical headquarters in the New World. As a result, Puerto Rico became the epicenter of the Spanish Inquisition, one of the most barbaric and infamous events of the Western civilization. Much to everyone's surprise, coconuts are not native of Puerto Rico or the Americas at all. You might picture yourself on the beach sipping delicious coconut water out of a freshly cut coconut, but did you know that coconuts are not even native to the Americas? The coconut was introduced to Puerto Rico in 1542 after the Spanish imported it from the Far East, and soon after it became part of the colonial Spanish diet and eventually emerged into one of the most popular drinks on the island, and where I'm from in Hawaii, the piña colada. And I always save the best for last, and I think that this is kind of interesting, and my fiancé definitely would love this fact, but Puerto Rico has one of the largest rum distilleries in the world. It's in Catano, 
and called Casa Bacardi. It's so big that more than 70% of the rum sold in the United States comes from Puerto Rico. Also, Puerto Rico is the only rum producer in the world to maintain a minimum aging law for its rum. So if you're interested in visiting this distillery, you can take a day tour from Old San Juan. Okay, that's it for all the facts I have today about Puerto Rico. So on to our first case. I wanted to cover the Ponce Massacre in Puerto Rico because it was a huge event actually took place on Palm Sunday, and it was one of the craziest stories that I have ever read just about how corrupt the police can get when you have a corrupt official in charge. So let's get started. In 1934, Pedro Albizu Campos led an island-wide agricultural strike, which paralyzed the U.S. sugar corporations and won a great victory for the sugarcane workers. It raised their wages from about 45 cents to $1.75 per hour, and they usually worked 12-hour days. A Citizens Committee for the Preservation of Peace and Order was formed. They sent a telegram to President Franklin Roosevelt stating that a state of actual anarchy exists, towns in a state of siege, citizens unable to leave home, police impotent, business paralyzed. The sugar industry attorney Charles Hartwell warned that the nationalists were planning another strike in which every American in the sugar plantations will be murdered. This, of course, was not true because all these people were fighting for was just a fair wage because they put in enormous amounts of money. I mean, I don't even work 12-hour days. I used to in an old job, and it would just drain the life out of me, and I definitely would never do it for $1.75, much less for $0.45 an hour. So I totally get it. But in response to all of this hysteria... FDR installed U.S. Army General Blanton Winship as the new governor. Winship's primary mission was to crush the Nationalist Party and intimidate anyone from joining them. And from that moment on, Albizu was a marked man. Arson and bomb threats were made against his home. FBI agents tapped his phone, read his mail, and followed him all over the island. In 1936, he was arrested and imprisoned for advocating the overthrow of the U.S. government. So this just quickly got like super out of hand, going from a small little strike about agricultural wages to now the FBI is getting involved and then he's arrested and imprisoned for overthrowing the government. It's just crazy. And then a year later after he was arrested... March 21st, 1937, in his hometown of Ponce, a peaceful march was organized on behalf of Albizu Campos. Several days before the scheduled Palm Sunday march, the nationalists had received legal permits for a peaceful protest from Jose Tormos Diego, who was the mayor of Ponce. And according to a 1926 Puerto Rico Supreme Court ruling, they didn't even need the permits. They were just doing it as a courtesy to the government. And the permits were granted. But of course, upon learning about the march, General Blanton Winship ordered the new insular police chief, Colonel Enrique de Orbeta, to contact Mayor Tormos and have him cancel the parade permit. He ordered the police chief to increase the police force in the southern city and to stop, quote-unquote, by all means necessary, any demonstration conducted by the nationalists in Ponce. And without any notice to the organizers or any opportunity to appeal this decision, 
or even any time to arrange an alternate venue for their march, the permits were abruptly withdrawn just before the protest was scheduled to begin. And following Governor Winship's orders, Colonel de Orbeta, the police chief, went to Ponce where he con concentrated police units from across the island, sporting the latest riot control equipment. And remember, this is a peaceful march. And among this equipment, he included the machine gunners. Winship intended to crush the activities of the nationalists and their leader, Pe Pedro Albizu Campos, who is still in jail. Anyway, the insular police which was a force somewhat resembling the National Guard, was under the direct military command of Governor Winship and ultimate, ultimate responsibility for the massacre fell on Governor Winship, who controlled the National Guard and Insular Police. And of course, he ordered the shootings. But before we get to all that, Police Chief Guillermo Soldevilla of the municipality of Juana Diaz with 14 policemen took a position in front of the marchers. Chief Perez Segarra and Sergeant Rafael Molina commanding nine policemen armed with Thompson submachine guns and tear gas bombs stood in the back of the marchers. Chief of Police Antonio Bernardi heading 11 policemen armed with machine guns stood in the east and another group of 12 police armed with rifles was placed in the west. According to some reports, police numbered over 200 heavily armed guards. And I'm going to warn you, it's about to get really sad. So it's Palm Sunday. Men, women, and children arrived from all over the island, dressed in their Sunday finest, waving palm fronds at each other. A five-piece band started playing La Boricana, the Puerto Rican national anthem, as the peaceful march began. And then a shot rang out. Ivan Rodriguez Figueres fell like a rag doll. A second shot exploded, and an 18-year-old poking his head out of a window fell down, dead. A third shot dropped Obdulio Rosario, carrying a palm-leaf crucifix. Panic, screams, curses, as everyone tried to run in all directions. But they couldn't escape because 200 policemen with Tommy guns and rifles were stationed all around them. They blocked every escape route and, cre escape route and created a killing zone. And then they started firing. A boy was shot on a bicycle. A father tried to shield his dying son and was shot in the back. An orange vendor hid behind a statue of Jesus Christ until a cop ran over and shot him in the head. Clouds of smoke covered the street as 20 submachine gunners set their feet and sprayed their 10-pound Tommy guns. An old man flew upward, his body split almost in two. Another man raised a Bible and started to pray until they blasted him in the back. The Bible went flying and he dropped. The flag bearer of the cadets was killed. Carmen Fernandez grabbed the flag and then was shot in the chest. Dominga Cruz Becerro, who was visiting from another town, grabbed it and was managed to run away. In a contagion of panic or savagery, the police kept firing again and again. They shot into several corpses, and then they fired over those corpses as if they didn't exist. The bullets flew everywhere. They hit the pavement, the buildings, the trees, the telephone poles, filling the air with dust and grit. They chased people down the side streets, shooting and clubbing anyone they could find. They clubbed a man to death on his own doorstep. 
They clubbed 53-year-old Maria Hernandez del Rosario on the head so hard that her gray matter spilled out onto the street and people kept slipping on it. They shot a seven-year-old girl in the back as she ran to a nearby church. They shot a man on his way home as he yelled, but I am a National Guardsman. He wasn't even part of the uh, peaceful march. They shot men, women, and children in the back as they were trying to run away. The bullets flew everywhere. A cadet of the Republic, Bolivar Marquez Telequea, dragged himself to a wall. And just before dying, with his own blood, he managed to write, Long live the Republic, down with the murderers, and signed it with three crucifixes. And a few moments later, Bolivar Marquez Telequea stopped moving forever. The police shot for 13 minutes. By the time they finished, 17 men, one woman, and a seven-year-old girl was dead. Dozens were maimed for life, and over 200 more were gravely wounded, moaning, crawling, bleeding, begging for mercy in the street. Many were chased by the police and shot or clubbed at the entrance of their houses as they tried to escape. Others were taken from their hiding places and killed. Leopold Tormes, a member of the Puerto Rico legislature, claimed to reporters that a policeman had murdered a nationalist with his bare hands. The air seethed with gun smoke as everyone moved in a fog of disbelief, and the policemen still swaggered about. Blood covered the entire scene, and when the smoke finally cleared over Aurora and Marina streets, the following people lay dead. And I know this is quite a few names, but I want to honor them all. Ivan G. Rodriguez Figueres, Juan Torres Gregory, Conrado Rivera Lopez, Georgina Maldonado, who was a seven-year-old girl, Gennaro Rodriguez Mendez, Luis Jimenez Morales, Juan Delgado Cotal Nieves, Juan Santos Ortiz, Ulpiano Perea, Seferino Loyola Perez, Eusebio Sanchez Perez, both of those people were belonging to the insular police and not part of the march, Juan Antonio Pietrantoni, Pietrantoni, Juan Reyes Rivera, Pedro Juan Rodriguez Rivera, Obdulio Rosario, Maria Hernandez del Rosario, Bolivar Marquez Telequea, Ramon Ortiz Toro, Teodoro Velez Torres. No guns or weapons were found in the hands of the civilians wounded or on the dead ones. About 150 of the demonstrators were arrested immediately afterward and then was later released on bail. So all of this happened in the public, in the middle of the street, and everybody saw. And now I'm going to tell you exactly how it was reported to basically the mainland, to the United States. And this is the cover-up. When there was no one left to shoot, the police chief did some quick thinking. He noticed that a cameraman from El Mundo, Angel Lebron Robles, was running all over the street photographing everything. He also noticed a police officer, Eusebio Sanchez Perez, who had been killed by their own machine gunfire, Orbeta called over the El Mundo photographer, plus several of his men, 
and staged a series of live-action photos to show that the police were returning fire from nationalists who were, at this point, lying dead in the street. The first photo showed the dead officer, Sanchez Perez, killed in the police crossfire. The next photo showed two officers exchanging fire with no one. There's no one left in the street, and a dead body lied about 20 feet away, and right in front of them laid a ghoulish prop, the corpse of a dead officer, Sanchez Perez, again. In the next photo, the chief of police and two men scanned the rooftops for nationalist snipers. Everyone is neatly arranged yet again around the corpse of Officer Eusebio Sanchez Perez to suggest that nationalists were shooting down at the police who were only engaged in self-defense. But this ruse did not work. Every island newspaper reported that there was no one to exchange fire with. And six days after the massacre, Florete magazine ran an illustration by popular cartoonist Manuel de Catalan. It was an exact recreation of the staged photo with the police chief and his two hapless policemen, staring up at the rooftops looking for non-existent snipers, with the photographer saying, cheese. Under the cartoon, the caption read, Ahora podemos decir que nos dispararon desde las azoteas, which means, now we can say that they fired at us from the rooftops. I'm putting this photo on my website, along with a few others from this really horrible event, so you can go check that out at coastalcrimespod.com. Anyway, also a doctor from a local hospital, Jose Gondara, testified that many of the wounded he'd seen, including women and children, had been shot in the back, clearly showing that they were not the ones who fired first and they were in fact running away. In every island newspaper, especially El Imparcial and El Mundo, ran photos of the scene, showing walls and buildings pockmarked from all of the machine gunfire. Their front pages screamed about the Ponce massacre and repeated the words of Bolivar Marquez Telequea, which had been written in his own blood, Viva la República, abajo los asesinos, which is, long live the Republic, down with the murderers. The next day, Winship, the one who had ordered this attack, radioed Washington and reported officially that the Nationalists had in- initiated the shooting. Part of his radiogram report stated that two shots were fired by the Nationalists, with Nationalists firing from the street and from roofs and balconies on both sides of the street. The police showed great patience, consideration, and understanding of the situation, as did the officers and men under the police chief. The following day, as a result of this misinformation, the New York Times and Washington Post reported that a nationalist political revolt had claimed the lives of more than 18 people in Puerto Rico. In the towns of Ponce and Mayaguez, over 20,000 mourners attended the funeral ceremonies for the victims. The Puerto Rican Senator Luis Munoz Marin traveled to the city of Ponce to investigate the event. After examining the photograph taken by Carlos Torres Morales of El Imparcial, which had not yet been published, he wrote a letter to Ruth Hampton, an official at the Department of the Interior. And I'm not exactly sure what what that is, but he said that the photograph showed that the policemen were not shooting at the uniformed nationalists, but instead shooting at a terrified crowd in full flight. Over 30,000 people swarmed into San Juan's Plaza Baldoriati, 
and the University of Puerto Rico campus in Rio Piedras to hear the commission findings. And after a 10-day investigation, they determined that the Palm Sunday shootings were not a riot by Puerto Ricans, but instead a police massacre. Initial investigations of the event differed on whether the police or the marchers fired the first shots. Governor Winship applied pressure on the district attorney's office in charge of the investigation. He requested that the public prosecutor from Ponce, Rafael Perez Marchand, arrest more nationalists and that no charges be filed against the police. The prosecutor then resigned as a result of being denied the opportunity to conduct a proper investigation. I mean, if you're not going to stand up to the guy, I guess that's the proper thing to do. But if I was that guy, I would have just stood up to him and said, no, I'm going to arrest who's responsible, which in this case would have been the police. A Puerto Rican government investigation into the incident drew few conclusions. A second independent investigation ordered by the United States Commission on Civil Rights led by the ACLU's Arthur Garfield Hayes, together with Puerto Rican citizens, took place. This investigation concluded that the events on March 21st constituted a massacre and mob action by the police. The report harshly criticized the repressive tactics and massive civil rights violations by Governor Winship. After viewing the photograph taken by Carlos Torres Morales, Hayes, in his report to the American Civil Liberties Union, questioned why the governor's investigation had not used the photography, which was among two that were widely published. According to Hayes, the photograph clearly showed 18 armed policemen at the corner of Aurora and Marina Streets, ready to fire upon a group of innocent bystanders. The image showed the white smoke in the barrel of a policeman's revolver as he fired upon the unarmed people. The Hayes Commission questioned why the policemen fired directly at the crowd and not at the nationalist cadets. In the aftermath of the massacre, no police officer was convicted or sentenced to jail. No police were demoted or suspended, and Governor Winship never issued a public apology. In fact, Governor Winship was never prosecuted for the massacre and no one under his chain of command, including all of the police who took part in the event and admitted to the mass shooting, was ever prosecuted or reprimanded. The Ponce massacre reverberated through the U- throughout the U.S. Congress. On the House floor, Congressman John T. Bernard expressed his shock and outrage. He said, quote, The police in Ponce probably with the encouragement of the North American police chief and even the governor, opened fire on a Palm Sunday nationalist march, killing 17 and wounding more than 200. End quote. Congressman Vito Marcantonio, Mar- Marcantonio, Marcantonio joined in the criticism, filing charges against Governor Winship with President Roosevelt. In his speech before Congress, titled Five Years of Tyranny, Congressman Vito Marcantonio reported that ex-Governor Blanton Winship of Puerto Rico was summarily removed by the President of the United States on May 12, 1939, after charges were filed against Mr. Winship with the President. Now, remember, this happened in 1937, so it took two years for charges to be filed against him. And in those two years, he was still acting governor of Puerto Rico. So in the congressman's speech, he detailed the number of killings by the police and added, quote, 
The facts show that the affair of March 21st in Ponce was a massacre. Governor Winship tried to cover up this massacre by filing a mendacious report, end quote. And the congressman called Governor Winship a tyrant. And the year following the Ponce massacre, while he was still governor on July 25th, 1938, Governor Winship wanted to mark the anniversary of the U.S. 1898 invasion of Puerto Rico with a military parade. He chose the city of Ponce to demonstrate that his law and order policy had been successful against the nationalists. Remember, this is before he was charged. During the parade, shots were fired at the grandstand where Winship and his officials were sitting in an attempt to assassinate him. It was the first time that an attempt was made on the life of a governor of Puerto Rico. But Winship escaped unharmed, but two men were killed and 36 people were wounded. The dead included the nationalist Angel Esteban Anton Giorgi and National Guard Colonel Luis Irizarry. The Nationalist Party denied participation in the attack, but the government arrested several nationalists and accused nine of murder and conspiracy to incite violence. Among the nine nationalists charged and convicted were Tomas Lopez de Victoria, captain of the Ponce branch of the Cadets of the Republic, and fellow cadets Elifaz Escobar, Santiago Gonzalez Castro, Juan Pietri, and Prudencio Segarra. They served eight years in the Puerto Rico State Penitentiary, Penitentiary, and then the four were pardoned by the next full-term U.S.-appointed governor, Rexford Guy Tugwell. But they still had to serve eight years before they were pardoned. <sighs> Winship tried to repress the nationalists, obviously. Jamie Benitez Rexach, or Rexach, a student at the University of Chicago at the time, and later longtime chancellor of the University of Puerto Rico, wrote to President Roosevelt stating, Governor Winship himself, through his military approach to things, has kept has helped keep Puerto Rico in an unnecessary state of turmoil. He seems to think that the political problem of Puerto Rico limits itself to a fight between himself and the nationalists, that no holds are barred in that fight, and that everybody else should keep out and Winship was replaced in 1939. And remember, all of this started because they just wanted fair wages for working in the sugarcane fields. It's just complete bonkers to me. Anyway, to this day, the Ponce Massacre stands as a monument of official brutality, a terrorist act by the government itself. It was a message from the U.S. to the people of Puerto Rico. It was a state-sponsored slaughter of unarmed men, women, and children for the purpose of frightening them into total submission. It was murder in broad daylight on Palm Sunday. And that is where I will leave you with that case. I just thought that that was so bonkers that that even happened. It sounds like something out of a movie. But of course, this is the United States and our history is completely effed up. So I thought it was interesting and I had never heard that story before. Moving on to a more mysterious and I think intriguing story where we actually kind of have an answer at the end that is really new and makes me excited. I want to tell you the story of a murdered banker in Puerto Rico, Maurice Spagnoletti. Maurice Spagnoletti was hired to clean up Doral Bank, but did he uncover something that got him killed? 
On the day that Maurice was murdered, his black Lexus sedan was full of balloons. It was June 15, 2011, the day before his wife's birthday, and he was planning a celebration. Maurice, 57, was the number two executive at Doral Bank in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Once flush, the bank had been almost ruined by a fraud scandal, and in 2007 it was rescued by Bear Stearns, Goldman Sachs, and a group of hedge funds. The Wall Street investors had put up $610 million, but Doral continued to lose money, and they were losing patience. In late 2010, Doral hired Spagnoletti, a New Jerseyan experienced in managing large banks with orders to reduce costs and get Puerto Rican operations back under control. When the banker arrived on the island, he made a good first impression. At six feet, two inches, and about 250 pounds, with a strong Jersey accent and hands that he used to punctuate his sentences, Spagnoletti reminded his new colleagues of Tony Soprano without the menace. He'd walk through the Doral office, stopping at Underling's desk to get up to speed on who ran what and how they ran it. The sun was setting on another muggy San Juan day as Spagnoletti pulled out of Doral's bland office park downtown. His wife was waiting at home with their six-year-old daughter. He'd flown his sister-in-law in for the party, too. Remember, it was her birthday. The drive to his condo on palm tree-lined Condado Beach took just 15 minutes when there wasn't traffic. But a few minutes later, after Spagnoletti got on the highway, he slowed for a backup on a bridge over a canal. Another car pulled up alongside him. Someone fired at least nine shots from a 40 caliber handgun, shattering his windows, and four bullets hit him in the head. Spagnoletti's momentum sent his car veering off the highway, and it came to a stop in a thicket of tropical brush. The police arrived, and at 7.21 p.m., they pronounced him dead. The identities of Spagnoletti's killers were a mystery and the bank overhaul that he was hired to lead didn't work without him. Doral ended up collapsing in 2015, the biggest U.S. bank failure since 2010, done in by bad loans and Puerto Rico's decade-long economic spiral. The Wall Street investors who hadn't already sold were wiped out, and the U.S. government spent $700 million to cover depositors' losses. Almost everyone in San Juan baking circles has a theory about this murder. Some believe only Colombian hitmen could pull off such an assassination. Others say Spagnoletti had enemies in the U.S. who just caught up with him. His widow, Marissa, revealed her own theory in a 2013 lawsuit. She said he was killed because he uncovered fraud at the bank and fired an executive he suspected of embezzlement. Doral's lawyers called her claims ridiculous, and after Marissa admitted in a deposition that she really had no evidence, she ended up withdrawing the suit. Since then, new details of the killing have emerged, and according to former Doral executes and people working on the criminal investigation, Marissa was on to something. Quote, let's use our common sense for a second. End quote, says Marissa Dominguez, who was in charge of an investigation into Doral as first assistant U.S. attorney in San Juan until she retired last year. Last year, as in, I think it was 2019, not 2020. This guy was brought by the bank to put the house in order. He starts uncovering certain things that are irregular at the bank. He starts to take corrective action. These circumstances strongly suggest a financial motive to get this guy out of the way. 
But this wasn't the usual Puerto Rican corruption. The real story of Maurice Spagnoletti's murder may be more bizarre than anyone knew. Doral Bank's founder was Solomon Levis, whose Jewish father fled Poland to escape the Nazis. The family settled in Cuba, where Solomon was born, then moved to Puerto Rico. In 1972, Levis and his siblings started a mortgage company that would eventually become Doral. The bank took off as the island prospered, and by, tw- that, by 2001, it was originating almost half the home loans in Puerto Rico. Its profits peaked at almost $490 million in 2004. Around then, the Levis family's 8% stake in the bank was valued at $355 million, making them among the island's richest people. Solomon Levis, who had become a corpulent playboy, was a fixture at high society events, and the gossip pages chronicled his divorce and remarriage to a much younger blonde lawyer. But then it all unraveled. In 2005, the bank revealed it had inflated its earnings by about $1 billion, prompting investigations. Levis wasn't charged, but his nephew went to prison for fraud, and the Levis family was forced out of the bank. We had a real mess, says John Ward, who was appointed interim chief executive officer in 2005. The bank didn't have enough money to pay off $625 million of debt coming due. The board wanted a CEO from outside Puerto Rico to clean house and attract new investors. In 2006, they found Glenn Wakeman, who was running GE Capital's consumer credit business in Mexico and the rest of Latin America. Wakeman, then 46, had graduated from the University of Scranton and spent more than 20 years working for General Electric around the world. In Mexico, he'd taken a stagnant business and more than doubled its size, according to Mark Bigor, his boss at the time, who called Wakeman an energizing and passionate leader. To lure him to Puerto Rico, Doral offered a minimum of $5 million in pay over the first two years, plus $1.5 million in stock, and $6 million to make up for his GE position. Wakeman believed fervently in the GE management philosophy. He liked to talk about Six Sigma, the quality mantra popularized by former GE CEO Jack Welch. He hired bankers from Bear Stearns to find new investors, shuttled to New York to meet with hedge funds, and replaced most of Levis's deputies. Lesbia Blanco, then 59 and a human resource director at Johnson & Johnson, was one of those new executives. As Doral's new chief talent and administrative officer, Blanco was part of Wakeman's inner circle with an office near his on the ninth floor of headquarters. She soon realized something strange was going on at Doral. One Saturday in 2006 or 2007, she says, when she was working overtime to help prepare the bank to court Wall Street investors, a security card came by her office. He told her there was someone in Wakeman's office he didn't recognize and showed her a security camera picture of a man wearing a beaded necklace and clothes that were unusually casual for the executive floor. Blanco walked over to investigate. Wakeman's secretary was there with the stranger. She told Blanco that the man was her Santeria godfather and that he was helping the bank with its recapitalization. The religion known as Santeria emerged in the 16th century among people from West Africa called Yoruba, who were enslaved and brought to the Caribbean. 
Co-opting the Catholicism that their captors tried to impose, they picked saints to represent their deities and continued to worship them in secret with drum circles and animal sacrifices in the woods. The religion now has about 70,000 followers in Puerto Rico, according to Joaquin Kimi Solis, president of the island's Yoruba Association. The man Blanco saw in the CEO's office was Rolando Rivera Solis. Kimi Solis says Rivera, a distant cousin, is a babalawal, babalawal, or a Santeria high priest. As a babalawal, Rivera can initiate others into the religion, conduct sacrifices, and divine the destinies of his followers by tossing coconut rinds on the ground. Blanco started seeing Rivera on the executive floor more and more. Quote, he had access to Glenn's office directly, end quote, she says. She says her secretary once had to clean Wakeman's clothes, not clear of what, after a ritual at the Santeria priest's house. Blanco wondered why the American CEO was dabbling in this local religion, but she kept her questions to herself. Wakeman was close with his secretary, Nancy Velez. Other than his driver, who also doubled as a bodyguard, she was the only person allowed to ride in the executive elevator with him. She would walk him out of the building, carrying his briefcase, then kiss him goodbye on the cheek as he got into his chauffeured car, according to two people who saw them. Such embraces aren't uncommon in Puerto Rican culture. Other Doral employees started to notice unusual things. Juan de la Cruz, the bank's vice president for security, says someone told him Velez and Rivera were conducting Santeria rituals in the boardroom. There was no security camera there, but de la Cruz checked the footage from one in the hallway. Quote, I looking in the camera and saw Rolando, he says, walking with the luggage and some bottles in his hand. End quote. De La Cruz says he dropped his inquiry after another employee who practiced Santeria told him that the rituals were sanctioned by Wakeman. A former administrative assistant who asked for anonymity because she's afraid of the Babalawal says Velez told her about one ritual involving a caiman, an alligator-like reptile native to Puerto Rico. And guys, I definitely looked up this caiman creature and it legit looks like an alligator like i don't understand the difference it looks exactly like an alligator like with the big eyes and everything so i'm just gonna say it's an alligator but anyway rivera velez and another doral employee drove the caiman to the parking lot early one sunday the former assistant says and used velez's access to the executive elevator to bypass security Dressed all in white, they took the Kaiman into the conference room and invoked the names of each board member, the former assistant says she was told. She adds that she thinks the creature wasn't killed because she didn't see any blood the next day. But nobody knows what happened to it after that. Lizzie Rosso, Doral's general manager for consumer banking at the time, says someone who was at the Kaiman ritual, ritual told her about it the following Monday. Other former Doral employees declined to discuss the subject. Quote, maybe they are afraid of the Santeria and the consequences, Rosso says, laughing nervously. I don't want to be killed, end quote. Solis, the Yoruba Association president, is skeptical that a Kaiman would have been involved. They normally sacrifice rams, goats, chickens, roosters. All of that is part of the ancient religions. But the Kaiman doesn't really have the power to do anything, he said. 
If Rivera did perform a ritual, it was apparently successful. In May 2007, Doral announced it had sold 90% of its stock for $610 million to a group of investors, including Bear Stearns, Goldman Sachs, Marathon Asset Management, D.E. Shaw, and Perry Capital. Eleven months later, Rivera was given a contract to clean Doral's headquarters and branch offices. The head of the previous janitorial service says she's never even heard of Rivera in her 17 years in the local cleaning business. Rivera's company, SJ Tropical Maintenance Services, wasn't registered until the month he won the contract. And while the old cleaners charged $23,000 a month, SJ Tropical was given $27,350. So basically, Rivera, this Babalawo guy, is now infiltrating the actual company and is being paid for his quote-unquote cleaning services. And being paid more than the actual cleaner was. Which, of course, she's not cleaning anymore because he is now. Anyway, Blanco said the contract was sanctioned by Wakeman, by Wakeman, the CEO. It was a reward for helping Glenn keep the bank afloat, she says. Wakeman, who's been working as a consultant in Miami since Doral failed, denied any allegations he'd been involved with Rivera, practiced Santeria, or rewarded the high priest. This is both shocking and untrue, he said. Wakeman's lawyer declined to comment further. Rivera's lawyer, Melanie Carrillo Jimenez, says that while her client is a high priest, he didn't perform any ritual for the bank. He wasn't getting paid for any Santeria whatsoever, she says. Where the hell did this come from? And I kind of agree with that, but what else was he doing there? <laughs> Who knows? Doro's vice president for property and facilities, Annalise Fig Figueroa, oversaw the new, more expensive maintenance contract. She says the contract included additional services and was approved by Wakeman, who, Figueroa said, did practice Santeria. Wakeman used Rolando, she says. When I found out, obviously I thought it was weird, but then again, you can't mess with people's religions. Figueroa and Blanco, her boss, didn't make an issue of the janitorial contract. But in 2009 and 2010, they accused each other of inflating the costs of other services. Blanco says she investigated her subordinate and told Wakeman that the bank should fire Figueroa. Wakeman overruled Blanco, without saying why, and began to freeze her out. Since that day, her life was miserable. Wakeman didn't involve Blanco in any meetings, and she said she was just there like a piece of paper that you move from one side to another. So eventually, Blanco left Doral in October 2010. But by then, Wakeman had already given some of her responsibilities to a new executive, Maurice Spagnoletti. He had access to all the information in my computer, Blanco said. All the details on what had happened to that investigation— Perhaps he got suspicious and started digging. Blanco said she feels lucky she escaped with her life. I thank my lord every day. That person didn't go there to be killed, but to work. It's bad. Marissa Spagnoletti returned to New Jersey and turned her grief into action by setting up a nonprofit foundation in her husband's name. The Maurice J. Spagnoletti Foundation supports local charities with a focus on helping children and crime victims. 
She also opened a nonprofit boutique called Lucy's Gift in Floorham Park, New Jersey, that sells handbags, jewelry, and gifts. All the proceeds benefit charity. If you look around the boutique, everything is centered on our mission, which is to end all violence in this amazing country and to help so many, especially children and victims of crime in need, Spagnoletti told Fox News. Spagnoletti started working as a bank teller, this is Maurice, as a bank teller in New Jersey as a teenager, according to Marissa. He got a business degree at night and worked his way up in the course of 20 years, eventually becoming president of Summit Bank's Pennsylvania division. He raised two children with his first wife. Then in 1999, Maurice reconnected with Marissa. They'd worked together at a Summit predecessor, but didn't know each other well and had been called to testify in a court case about the bank. Maurice and Marissa were both Italian and Catholic. He'd grown up in Jersey City, and she was from Bayonne, just a few miles away. Spagnoletti was 11 years older, and on the last night of the trial, he asked her out. They were married the next year. Marissa said Maurice would cheer her up when she had problems at work. Go look outside, he would say. The sun's out. The sun's going to always come out. Everything could be solved. In 2000, Spagnoletti joined Fifth Third Bank. He became head of its Central Indiana affiliate, presiding over branch openings and organizing field trips for school children. He won over his new colleagues with jokes, but held them accountable for meeting the goals they set. Spagnoletti would invite them and their spouses to his home for bocce and pasta. He said the word great so incessantly that it became a running joke at the office. After a few years at another bank in South Carolina, The Spagnolettis moved back to New Jersey around 2008 because Marissa's father was dying. Maurice used the free time to dote on his daughter, who was then three. Bruce Balmas, who worked with him at Fifth Third and Doral, says his friend would call him from the park and say, I never could have done this before. Two years later, recruiters contacted Maurice, asking if he'd consider moving to Puerto Rico. The package at Doral included, in addition to a $400,000 salary, a $300,000 target bonus, making him among the highest paid people at the bank. Spagnoletti was hired as executive vice president for mortgage and banking operations, responsible for what happened in Puerto Rico day to day. When Spagnoletti arrived in September 2010, Wakeman was battling the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. The CEO was saddled with billions in loans the bank had made under its previous owners. As Puerto Rico tipped into recession, Doral had to keep marking the loans down, eroding its capital. The FDIC blocked Wakeman's plan to buy assets from Doral's rivals, and without a clear plan for growth, some of the bank's Wall Street investors bolted. Goldman Sachs lost at least $30 million, and the hedge funds Marathon, D.E. Shaw, and Perry lost about $50 million each, according to filings. After the shooting, Marissa was hysterical. The bank sent armed guards to walk executives home. Spagnoletti admired Wakeman as a CEO and believed the bank could be turned around. I'm working harder than ever, but I must say I love it, Spagnoletti wrote in an email to a friend on April 22, 2001. I make significant contributions and feel very appreciated. One problem is the lack of talent. I need to check everyone's answer twice. Otherwise, this is a GE type of environment. 
Sorry, that was my Aussie barking at someone on the road. Ah, no way to drown out that noise. Anyway, Sigma-6 black belts running around. Initially, Spagnoletti commuted from New Jersey to Puerto Rico. He and Marissa never stayed apart for more than three days. They lived in a Marriott hotel for a while, and then a condo on Condado Beach. In the spring of 2011, Spagnoletti hired Balmas as a consultant. They had dinners at an Italian restaurant by the beach and spent some nights gambling at casinos on the Condado Strip. Spagnoletti loved to swim and take his daughter to look for seashells. But that same spring, Spagnoletti clashed with Figueroa, the facility's vice president who handled the Santeria priest's maintenance contract. They fought about purchases as small as a table, according to a lawsuit she filed against the bank in 2012 alleging gender discrimination. On March 8th, Spagnoletti emailed Figueroa asking whether she understood that she was supposed to follow his orders. Do you understand that as a vice president of this company, you were also expected to always exercise good judgment in the performance of your duties? He wrote, yes, always have and always will. She replied in all caps, according to her lawsuit, which was settled confidentially. So we will never know what happened with it. Marissa alleged in her lawsuit that her husband uncovered fraud at Doral in the form of Figueroa paying vendors for services they didn't perform and making unauthorized transfers of $30,000 a week to someone. If Spagnoletti knew about Doral's Santeria Circle or the idea that the payments might have been not fraud but a reward for supernaturally assisting the bank, he kept that from his wife. Figueroa, who was fired on May 25th, 2011, said she did nothing wrong and doesn't know anything about Maurice's murder. I'm more anxious than anyone to find out who did it to clean up my name, she said. Three weeks after Figueroa's termination, on the day Maurice was killed, Spagnoletti left work on the early side. Balmas departed later and got stuck in traffic by the bridge. This is Maurice's, one of his very close friends. He didn't think anything of the shattered Lexus on the side of the road. Around 2 a.m., a colleague called to tell him what had happened. Balmas went to the Spagnoletti's apartment and found Marissa hysterical, talking about how her husband had been kidnapped. Wakeman had been there, along with other colleagues, and the bank sent armed guards to walk them home. Doral assigned security guards to other top executives, and Wakeman brought guards with him to Spagnoletti's New Jersey funeral. So everyone is scared at this point, or at least acting scared. As investigations into Spagnoletti's murder began, Doral struggled. The Puerto Rican economy only got worse, and more of the bank's loans became worthless. The FDIC wouldn't give Doral's balance sheet its seal of approval. And without it, Doral couldn't get the money it needed to operate. Wakeman tried expanding in the U.S. He moved Doral's headquarters to Miami in 2013. U.S. operations showed a profit that year, but it wasn't enough to make up for the deteriorating Puerto Rican portfolio. In 2014, Puerto Rico created a major crimes unit headed by Captain Ferdinand Acosta, and he took up the Maurice Spagnoletti murder. There weren't many leads, None of the 911 callers got a good look at the shooter or his vehicle, Acosta said. The murder was definitely not random, but the shooter exhibited poor aim, so he may not have been a professional gunman. 
Acosta said he started interviewing Doral employees, but got word from the FBI to back off. They prefer to do it alone, he said. The FBI's murder investigation, begun shortly after the 2011 shooting, had expanded to include fraud, just as Marissa had claimed. In December 2014, the FBI raided Doral, seizing computers from Wakeman, his secretary, and other executives. In February 2015, Rivera and Figueroa were arrested and charged with fraud. The federal indictment said that Figueroa changed the cleaning company's contract so that it was getting $24,288.27 every week instead of every month. In all, according to prosecutors, the pair wrongfully took about $2.4 million. Two days later, on February 25th, the FDIC closed Doral's doors for good. The agency spent $698.4 million, making Doral's depositors whole. Many of the branches, along with the headquarters, were sold to Popular, another Puerto Rican bank. The headquarters building is empty now. A rusty outline remains where the Doral sign used to hang. Days after the bank failed, Santeria's stories surfaced in local newspapers. El Nuevo Dia wrote that there had been a ritual with the Cayman at the bank. Levis, the founder, went on the radio to joke about it. The failure of Doral is like a detective novel, he said. Not even the Cayman could save them at the end. When Rivera came to court to plead not guilty to fraud, the proceedings revealed that police had found 10 guns in his home. All were legally registered to him or his wife. Prosecutors said Rivera had been charged with murder once before, in 1983, and was acquitted. He was put under house arrest with an electronic monitoring bracelet, and he also pleaded, oh no, not him, Figueroa also pleaded not guilty. Then eight months later, in October 2015, the agents looking into Spagnoletti's murder caught a break. A man on Puerto Rico's most wanted list was arrested at San Juan's airport. He'd worked for Rivera at his janitorial company, according to two people with knowledge of the investigation. His name is Yadiel Serrano Canales, a.k.a. Matombo, and according to prosecutors, he was a member of a gang that dealt cocaine and heroin in San Juan's Villa Esperanzo housing projects. In a court filing, an FBI agent described a June 2012 incident that got Matombo on the most wanted list. Just after 1 a.m., he and a friend approached three off-duty police officers who were hanging out at a bar across from the projects. After words were exchanged, Matombo left and returned with a gun. Put down the phone, D-sucker, Matombo said to one of the officers. The cops pulled out their own guns. Matombo grabbed a nearby woman by her hair and used her as a human shield. Matombo, don't do this, she cried. And then he fled, firing four times at the police officers, and escaped the island. In 2015, he arranged to return to Puerto Rico and turn himself in. FBI agents interrogated Matombo for about an hour in a windowless room on the second floor of San Juan's police headquarters. A person with knowledge of the FBI's investigation and one of the Puerto Rican police officers said Matombo is suspected of driving Spagnoletti's shooter. Matombo has not been charged in connection with that, but he is in federal custody, facing attempted murder charges for the police shootout. 
He pleaded not guilty, and his lawyer declined to comment. In November, Wakeman's secretary, Velez, was arrested and charged with perjury for telling the grand jury she didn't know about the payments to the Santeria priest. Prosecutors say she instructed two Doral employees to pay Rivera weekly rather than monthly. Velez pleaded not guilty. Her lawyer, Mariela Maestre Cordero, declined to comment. In April, the Doral case took yet another turn. U.S. prosecutors moved to drop the charges against Rivera and Figueroa. They withdrew the indictment without prejudice, meaning that they can file new charges with more information if they choose to. Rivera's attorney, Carrillo Jimenez, says her client had nothing to do with Spagnoletti's murder and that the payments he received were for janitorial services he performed. People are speculating, she said. There is no evidence whatsoever. Douglas Leff, the FBI special agent in charge of the San Juan Division, held a news conference on June 15th, the fifth anniversary of the shooting. He announced a $20,000 reward for information leading to an arrest, and Marissa offered $10,000 of her own money. The authorities are in the final stages of their investigation, he said, and have a great deal of information about the culprits. In an interview, Leff declined to comment on potential suspects. The fraud and murder investigations, he emphasizes, are proceeding on independent tracks. We've been working it very diligently, and we have a lot of momentum, he said about the murder. The more digging we do, the more potential avenues we find to work. There may be different people with different levels of culpability. Marissa had complete faith that the FBI will solve the case. You need to understand, she said, that justice is coming. Then, seven years after the murder, in December 2018, federal prosecutors in Puerto Rico announced that they had finally pieced together the mysterious murder of Maurice Spagnoletti. In an indictment unsealed in Puerto Rico, a grand jury charged six men in a wide-ranging drug trafficking operation that ultimately led to the alleged murders of three people, including Spagnoletti, who prosecutors said had come across what he thought was a suspicious contract involving the Doral Bank in San Juan and moved to terminate it. So maybe this wasn't about religion after all. We will see. Anyway, federal, state, and local law enforcement agents worked together with our prosecutors to target the leaders and key members of this violent gang who are responsible for all three murders, one of which was the murder of Maurice Spagnoletti in 2011, said U.S. Attorney Rosa Amelia Rodriguez-Velez in announcing the charges. According to Timothy Henwood, the first assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Puerto Rico, Spagnoletti found the cleaning contract with the institution to be excessive and declared it should be canceled. Essentially, that was the motivation for them to unfortunately kill him, he said. Unbeknownst to Spagnoletti, he had apparently stumbled across a complex scheme that involved not only the trafficking of crack cocaine and narcotics, but the laundering of money through the suspicious maintenance contract with the bank, as well as an organization that practiced the Santeria cult-like religion of the Caribbean to mask what it was doing, according to prosecutors. So now we have the, not the crazy religion, but the Santeria religion, and a drug ring going on. Super bonks. Anyway, 
Henwood said one of the alleged traffickers was seen as a spiritual advisor, even to some members of the Doral Bank itself. I wonder who that could be. According to court filings, the group would conduct Santeria religious ceremonies to protect their leaders, the organization, and their drug trafficking activities. Henwood also said the reward money played a small role in breaking the case, but added there were many elements that came together. What happens in these situations is you get a little piece of evidence here and there, he said. This was an important case. For the U.S. attorney, it's been a top priority for our office. Four of the six people charged in connection with Spagnoletti's murder are Louis Carmona Bernasset, a.k.a. Canito Cumbre, Yadiel Serrano Canales, a.k.a. Matombo, Rolando Rivera Solis, and Alex Burgos Amaro, a.k.a. Yogui. But no one was specifically charged with being the gunman. If convicted, the defendants face a minimum sentence of 15 years, from 10 years up to life in prison for the drug conspiracy charge, and from 5 years up to life in prison for the firearm charges. For the murder of Spagnoletti, the defendants could face the death penalty or imprisonment for any term of years or for life. And I tried to find an update since this was back in 2018 after the charges were filed, but I couldn't find anything. So my guess is with how slow our judicial system is and after the pandemic that hit us, they're probably still awaiting trial. I will keep you updated if I find out anything else. I have an alert set on my Google search, but other than that, that's my crazy other case for today and this week. I hope you guys liked it. And if you ever go to Puerto Rico and see people practicing Sant Santeria, maybe be a little wary of that. Hope everyone has a great rest of their week. I will see you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Coastal Crimes. Check out my website and blog at coastalcrimespod.com. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Coastal Crimes Pod. If you have questions or recommendations to share, please email me at coastalcrimespod at gmail.com. Episodes are available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the word. If you'd like to show your support and get a shout out on air, please visit my Patreon page to keep this show going.